Good morning, church family. Welcome. Everyone surviving winter? No? No? Yes? You're all awake? Cool. Good to have you here. Welcome to our other campuses. We've got Cincy, Bainbridge, Front Street, Online, joining us all here at Green by Simulcast. So Green, can we give them just a warm welcome as they join us? I, my name is Justin. I serve on the pastoral team here. Um, you might know my name, but let me ask if you know the name of this guy. This guy. Anyone know him? <laughs> what guy? The guy hanging there upside down with a straight jacket? I hear his name. I hear his name. Anyone ever met him? Probably not. And I'll tell you the story of this guy. This was the most famous escape artist in the world named Harry Houdini. And this guy was trained to escape just about anything you'd put him in. Here he's hanging by his ankles from a tall tower in New York City with a straitjacket on, and he found a way out. He would escape out of jails. He would escape out of boxes that were locked in the bottom of the rivers in New York City and across the world. He had a penchant for wowing crowds. And what people didn't know is that these were well-trained, well-planned stunts. But there was still something magical about Harry Houdini. And he found ways to get out of just about anything he was put in. But one day, something that was not choreographed, something that was not planned, occurred. He was in his dressing room preparing for his next performance. He was actually resting a little bit. He had recently broken his ankle because he did a ton of stunts. And uh, he was resting on the couch. And a fan walked in, a young man, and just began asking Harry some questions. And Harry was answering them. And the fan proceeded to ask him a question. He said, so I've heard that you can handle stomach blows. Do they really not hurt you? And Harry just basically said what any stuntman would say is, my stomach can handle a lot. I don't recommend saying that because of what happened next. The young man proceeded to start sucker punching him in his midsection repeatedly. Harry was lying on the couch. He was not prepared for this. And he was able to finally motion the guy to stop. He went out and he performed that night, but he was in excruciating pain. And he did what any other guy would do. He didn't go to the doctors. And there's debate about what happened next with Harry's body or when his appendix ruptured. But we do know that nine days later, Harry Houdini, the escape artist, was dead. The guy who could defeat death or escape death repeatedly through his life at only 52 years old was sent to his grave by an unexpected punch. And we call these punches, we call them sucker punches because they're punches that are given without warning or provocation. You don't see them coming because you don't expect them. So you say, okay, cool, cool story. Love Harry Houdini. Why are we talking about this in church? Good question. So turn to the person next to you. No. <laughs> so we're doing a series on facing opposition, right? And we're all kind of bracing for opposition because we see it, feel it coming. Yes? As our world's shifting to a, our country especially from a kind of Christianized nation to a post-Christian nation, we've seen that respect towards Christians have has gone to acceptance of Christians and has kind of gone towards hostility 
towards Christians and Christianity. We get it, we feel it. But I think what most of us don't expect is when the opposition comes from within the church. Some of you are here, and yet you have faced tremendous hurt from people in the church. I won't have you raise your hand. But I can say personally, in 20 years of ministry, some of my greatest wounds have come from people in the church. And they hurt more than anything because they're totally unexpected. You're not braced for them. And you never see them coming. And it's those sucker punches that can be the most deadly because you're not braced for it. Today we're going to look at Jesus, who's our role model, and see some times where he was repeatedly sucker punched, just without warning, without provocation. And the way that he responded to those sucker punches kind of gives us a roadmap for how to handle those from people within the walls, from people that we love and respect, and we never see it coming. So let's look and see how Jesus handled those. If you turn in your Bible to John 10, that's where we're going to be today. So uh, Chair Bible, page 862, and I'm going to read out of New Living Translation, which matches that Chair Bible. You can tap there on your device if you prefer electronic. Um, Also, if you would like uh, a a Bible, take that one home. It's our gift to you. Um, At Front Street, it's in a white bag. You can open that, take it home, and it's uh, there for you to use or take with you. John chapter 10. Uh, We're walking through the book of John last year and this year in, in different series. And in John 10, we're kind of continuing where we left off last week. Jesus had just healed a guy who was born blind. And after you do something like that, you would expect that there'd be like a ticker tape parade or something. That's a pretty awesome miracle. And Jesus faced the exact opposite of that. I mean, he faced some real opposition after doing a really good thing. And so he he launches into a a, a speech in the midst of this opposition, and and it starts pretty strong. Verse 1, he says, I tell you the truth. In other words, you may want to listen up here. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. Now, pause for a moment. Jesus in his day was becoming a very popular and famous teacher. One of the reasons for that is because his teaching was so different than any other teacher of his day. Teachers of that day, the way that they would teach is they would do citation-based teaching. So they would say, Rabbi Shmuel says this, and Rabbi Himuel says this, and they'd quote the teachers of the day. And you'd always be left wondering, so who do I believe? Which rabbi do I trust? And Jesus didn't do that. He didn't do citation-based teaching. He would speak, and he would say, here's what I say, or here's what God says. And people love the simplicity and clarity of Jesus' message. He would often teach through story. And in his day, teaching to a group of often farmers and shepherds, he would do a lot of stories that fit with their occupation. So if he came to Green, there'd probably be a lot of forklift stories. So Jesus connected with the people he was speaking to. And here again, he he uses an agrarian example, a a shepherd's example. And let's read verse 1 again. I tell you the truth. 
anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and robber. Okay, so what you may not feel right here is the tension that Jesus just exposed in the crowd. Jesus is looking at people who are opposing him, and he's calling them something. He's calling them imposters. He said, you're spiritual imposters. You didn't, you're in the sheepfold, you're within the walls of faith, you're part of our faith family, but you didn't come in the proper way. You didn't come through the gate. I can imagine everyone's leaning in like, what's the gate? They, they, don't, they don't get it. So Jesus goes on. He says, the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out, and he's gathered his own flock. He walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They'll run from him because they don't know his voice. Okay, so he's creating this picture of, of, of shepherding and sheep and gates, and they get it but they don't understand how it relates to anything. Like, sure, of course sheep know their shepherd's voice, and of course you always have to watch out for wolves that sneak in and can eat the sheep when you're not paying attention. So they get that. They just don't know the spiritual meaning. They're very confused, and that comes up in verse 6. So that those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. But the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. <laughs> There's no room for confusion or misunderstanding here, right? I'm the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him, and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and they know me. Just as my father knows me, and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, too, that are not in the sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The father loves me because I sacrificed my life, so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father commanded me. Now, what Jesus just did here is he, in, in one story, exposes and dismantles the imposters who were standing there in front of him. And, and, and here's the deal. He's saying some of you are here and the reason you're opposing me, the reason you're hurting other people, is because you look like you're God followers. You look like you're faith-filled people who follow God. But you're not. 
you hopped the fence, you didn't go in the gate. And he said true believers eventually discern between a true leader and a false leader. And the true believer knows that that's a stranger and, and, and walks away from him or her. But the true leader is someone who models like Jesus this integrity, this humility, this servant's heart. They're, they're not that way. And Jesus kind of gives some character traits of a, of a wolf. They're egotistical, they're selfish, they're focused on money and their own success. They don't really care about people. So if you, in, in church world, in faith world, there's a leader that you like and you follow, but it's a leader who doesn't seem to care about people, don't follow that person. They're more wrapped up in something else. Their, their motivations, who knows, but their motivations are selfish. And Jesus says they're imposters, and over time, their motivations will become known. Now, he keeps going, and this is where it gets very interesting. Verse 19, when he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. <laughs> Why listen to a man like that? You think some people are feeling uncomfortable by what Jesus is saying? Others said, this doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So they're debating Jesus' identity. It was now winter. <laughs> Cheer up, even Jesus endured winter. It was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah. Some of you have heard of the festival of Hanukkah. Even Jesus celebrated it. It was the festival of dedication. I don't want you to miss verse 23. He was in the... Okay, okay, so don't miss the context here. Jesus is at a religious festival. He's in the house of God, and he's surrounded by the most spiritually devout people of his nation. Okay? That's the context. He's walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade. For a person of faith, this is the most exciting place to be. This should be the spiritually safest place to be, the most exciting, powerful, passionate place to be for a person of faith. The people surrounded him and said, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah... Tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me. Read this next part with me out loud, if you will. Because you are not my sheep. Remind me where Jesus is at. He's in the temple, the house of God, in the holiest city, in the holiest nation on earth. The one nation God picked for himself was Israel in the center of the Middle East. The one city that he picked as his city is Jerusalem. The one house that he said he'd dwell with them and meet with them is the temple. He's in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the temple, surrounded by the most devout people of the day there to celebrate Hanukkah. He looks at them. He's like, the reason you don't believe and the reason you're pushing back and the reason you're causing all these divisive issues is really simple. You're not true believers. Jesus has some guts. I mean, he just says it point blank. You're not, you're not genuine believers. You're, you hopped the gate of faith. You're, you jumped the fence. You're playing the part. You look the part. You're acting the part. You might even talk the part. But I can see through all that. 
And you're not genuine people of faith. You're not my sheep. Verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. For my father has given them to me. And he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from my father's hand. The father and I are one. Jesus is like, I'm going to expose you guys. You're frauds. You're imposters. You're wolves. You're not true believers. Okay. He does this, and then they prove his point. Verse 31. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. And there you go. If you wanted any proof that these weren't genuine God followers, here's the proof. They pick up stones to stone him. And then Jesus' response in verse 31 is so good. In verse 32, he says this. At my father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? Okay, if you are a sarcastic person, you can feel very validated here. You are very Christ-like. Because this is dripping with sarcasm. As Jesus just looks at him and they're about to stone him and kill him. And he's like, okay, name the things you're stoning me for. Which of the good things I've done are you about to kill me for? Because Jesus knows he's done nothing wrong. And they know he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. He said nothing wrong in 33 years of life. That's quite an accomplishment. Most of us failed before we turned three. And Jesus is 33, and he's never failed. He's never said or done anything wrong. And so he's just like, okay, stone me. Which of the good things I've done are you going to stone me for? Sarcastic people unite. Verse 33, they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, talking to the guy who just healed a blind guy, right? You, a mere man, claim to be God. And Jesus replied, <laughs> okay, b- before you look at his reply, I don't want you to miss again. The people that Jesus is talking, are, is talking to right here, th- this is not a Roman Colosseum. It feels like it is. It's not a Greek temple to a false god. It's not even a Gentile marketplace. This is, this is the Jewish temple. This is the house of God. He said, it is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are God's. And you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called God's, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I am the son of God? After all, the father set me apart and sent me into the world. Don't believe me unless I carry out my father's work. But if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I've done, even if you don't believe me, believe the things you've seen. Then you will know and understand that the Father's in me, and I am in the Father. Now, in all the tension of this back and forth right here, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus is appealing to them to do what? The very people who's opposing him, he's appealing that they believe. Is that because Jesus is trying to elevate himself? Is Jesus trying to increase his popularity? Is he trying to get more likes on his Facebook page? Is he trying to get more Instagram followers or more TikTok views? No. What's Jesus trying to do? He's trying to rescue these very people who are opposing him. He's trying to give them a chance to enter through the gate of salvation. 
And I don't want us to miss that in the middle of all the tension of this scenario. Jesus is just relentless in giving people who are opposed to him an opportunity to receive him. There's a church I love in Western New York, and, and their motto is giving every man, woman, and child in Western New York repeated opportunities to hear, see, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just love that concept, giving every man, woman, child repeated opportunities. And that's what Jesus keeps doing. He's like, hey, I, I, guys, you're, you're frauds, you're imposters, but here's the gate. Believe in me, come through me. Okay, let's see if they do. Verse 39, once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. He went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John was first baptizing and stayed there a while. Now, what does it say next in verse 41? And many followed him. Uh, it's easy to miss that. That's significant. You think, okay, this is the crowd that's about to stone him. But there was something that he did and something that he said and some way that he responded that people are like, this guy's got something that we don't have. And many followed him. John, and they followed him to the Jordan River, which, by the way, was dirtier than Susquehanna. But anyway, John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another. But everything he said about this man has come true. And this is really cool, the end of this chapter, where we're going to stop here. And many who were there, what does it say? Whoa. Here's what's fascinating to me about this. Jesus is just repeatedly, in the last few chapters, and in this chapter included, he's, he's sucker punched without warning, without provocation. He is punched by the very people who should be supporting him, defending him. And Jesus doesn't run and hide when it gets really tense. He doesn't back down. He stands his ground. He calls out false believers. He points to the scriptures, and he invites people to believe. So let's take a few minutes and just kind of process and think through what this looks like for us. Because, you know, our theme verse for the series is this verse. It's, it's uh, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, read this with me, will suffer persecution. So we get it. We know this is part of the Christian package. You, you sign up to follow Jesus, you're going to face persecution. And we kind of feel like it's going to ramp up. Nationally, we feel like it's going to ramp up and hostility is going to increase. But I don't think we fully understand that persecution happens the most within the faith family of Jesus. See, Jesus experienced this repeatedly through his life. He faced his most opposition, not from the Roman leadership, not even from the Gentile disbelieving leadership. He faced most of his opposition and pushback from the very people who claim to be God followers. The apostles, Jesus' followers, faced the same thing. And that's kind of surprising, and I think that's unusual for us to wrap our heads around. I know for me it is, because I expect opposition from the world. I don't expect opposition from my faith family. I don't expect opposition at home or in my small group or in my church. One of Jesus' um, strongest apostles and followers was Paul. And Paul seemed to have a light bulb moment where he got this tactic. 
of internal opposition. And I think he figured out kind of why it's so common. Here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11. He said, these people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ, talking about these imposters. But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. I misspelled that there, light. Now, here's the deal. We have this view of Satan as this really red, pitchforked, forked tail, weird thing, right? This ugly, hideous being. That is not Satan at all. He is disguised as an angel of light. He was the most beautiful creation of God. He was number two, and he is the master imposter. So I don't think we see him coming because we wouldn't recognize him if he did. And his followers take the same strategy. So it's no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. Anyone ever heard of Billy Graham? Billy Graham, the most famous evangelist of our generation, and in the, one of the most in the history of the world, was convinced that in the church, 85% of attenders were headed to hell. He was convinced that 85% of church attenders weren't true Christians. And there's a guy who traveled the world and was familiar with hundreds of thousands of churches. A.W. Tozer, another author and Christian writer, was actually convinced the number was closer to 90% of people in the church were not true Christians. Anyone feeling paranoid yet? Now, this is not intended to make you feel paranoid. What it is intended to do is, is maybe just cause you to ponder and think and open your eyes a little that maybe opposition happens so much within the church because the church is loaded with imposters. Now, what I don't mean when I talk about imposters and what Jesus didn't mean are people who are genuinely searching, who are struggling, who are seeking, who are kicking the tires of faith, trying to figure out who Jesus is. Jesus loved people like that. The people he called out were those who acted the part, looked the part, claimed the part, but their hearts were far from God. They had it here, they didn't have it here, and this is called the 18-inch gap. And it's said that many people will miss heaven by 18 inches. Right? Jesus was here, the Bible was here, the truth was here, but it hadn't dropped here. And Jesus ran into those people his whole life. His followers ran into those people his, their whole lives. So what if within our gates are people who have jumped the walls? Now, you say, well, what about Berean Bible Church? What's the percent of people who are false believers? Well, I did a scientific study last week and found out that <laughs> no idea. I pray it's way under 90 and 85%. I hope and pray. And I think it's a lot lower partly because of the history of this church. You know, this church started because there was a true pastor down in Binghamton who started a Bible study for church people in green. And at that Bible study, just teaching the true Bible and the true Jesus, there were people who went to church in green, who came to the Bible study and said, I didn't know you had to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. We're good people. We're church people. We thought that was enough. And one by one, husbands and wives and kids began to truly surrender their lives to Jesus. 
And that's the reason this church was named Berean Bible Church. He said, we're never going to follow a person again. We're going to follow Jesus and his word. And we're always going to second guess what's taught to us. And we're always going to compare it with this book. Because we never want to be misled again by false teachers. We want to follow Jesus. And so I think that's kind of unique in terms of our history. Is that in our history, we had people of, it's amazing how many different denominations and backgrounds that started this church over 50 years ago. And they're shared bond is they had a love for Jesus Christ. And that was more important than their traditions and their labels. But I think it's still easy to get complacent and, and, and forget that even in a church like this, there are people all around us, maybe some of us, that are not genuine followers of Jesus. And some of them are being deceitful, right? They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And so that's a major issue. I think there's also some well-meaning false believers in the church. Just like people that started this church 50 years ago, they didn't know that they weren't true believers. They had the 18-inch gap. They didn't know that they had to receive Jesus as their personal Savior. They didn't know they had to go through the gate of Jesus to enter into his faith family. They hopped the walls. They didn't know it. They were well-meaning people. And so, I just wonder if we need to get in this mindset. I need to expect pushback from church people. Let, let, let me say this. Some of you are here, and you have been hurt deeply by church people. First of all, I want to tell you, I am so sorry if that's been your experience. And I am so proud of you for not giving up on Jesus. Because the people that hurt you did not represent Jesus well. Jesus would not have said that. He would not have done that. He would not have treated you that way. What's interesting today is that it's becoming more popular for people to say, I love Jesus but I hate the church. Have you heard that? Let me show you why that's impossible. Jesus said this, your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. What is the church? The church is people. It's a collection of the followers of Jesus. Your love for Jesus' church, for each other, will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So you might question, how do you find a false believer? Let's find him and let's sucker punch them before they sucker punch us. No. How do you identify a false believer? Well, this is one of the biggest things. True believers have this unconditional love for other Jesus followers. And some of you have experienced this and it's really cool. You, you connect with someone and you're like, I just have a feeling that they're a fellow Jesus follower. And then through the conversation, it comes out, and you're like, I had a feeling. Have you ever had that happen? That's this bond, this, this, this unwritten bond between true followers of Jesus. There's this connection. There's this love. I don't know you, but we share Jesus in common. And this is what people who are imposters or frauds, they don't have. And that's why they tend to be so harsh, is they're missing this. My reaction to other people 
is evidence of my faith. Can I flip that to you? Be a little personal here. Your reaction to other people is evidence of your faith. If you're cynical, if you're harsh, if you're short with people, it may be evidence that your faith has an issue. I'm not calling you a false Christian. I don't know your heart. God does. And so an awesome prayer to pray is, God, reveal my heart. Like, what's messed up? Is my faith legit? Or is there an issue in here? What's interesting is, as we talk about opposition and we think about persecution, I used to be convinced that when persecution hit America, churches would be forced underground. And I, and I think many of us just assume that's going to happen, right? We're going to lose tax exemption. We're going to lose our facilities. We're going to be forced to meet privately and, and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, there's a part of that that's true. But here's the deal. When you study how persecution outbreaks happen in other countries, you pick your country, most of the time what happens is only the true churches are forced underground. And any compromised church, and there's probably the majority of them are compromised churches, they stay open they've compromised we had at one point a, a student from china at binghamton university that annie and i had at our house and and she was like an exchange student and and we took her to church with us and that sort of thing and we just were curious to find out her background in china she grew up in beijing and we just you know we pray for the persecuted underground church in china and some of you've heard and read about what they face right we had a conversation with her one day about that, and she looked incredulous at us. And she's like, Christianity isn't outlawed in China. Like, okay, you know, tell us about that. She's like, no, it's legal. There's churches all over. Okay. Said, have you ever heard about the, um, the persecution that's happening to the underground church? She's like, there's no underground church. She grew up in Beijing. She had no idea. That the churches that she saw were sellout churches, fraudulent churches, who had sold out to the government and compromised. She had no idea that there was this thriving community of true believers that were underground. They hadn't got to her yet. And she lived in Beijing, China. So, I mean, just another mindset shift that when that time comes where persecution comes not from within the walls but outside the walls... There will still be visible churches all across the country, but they will be compromised. Churches filled with the very people Jesus is talking about, imposters. And so we need to make it our mission to make sure that we have true faith. And to make sure that we are loving and demonstrating that faith to the people around us. Because my friends, times are probably going to get hard. And only those with true faith will make it through those hard times. And let me tell you, hard time doesn't mean you run out of gas. It doesn't mean you stub your toe, right? The stakes are going to increase in our post-Christian society. And, and again, I'm not saying this to make anyone paranoid or fearful, and I don't have a crystal ball, and I have no idea what's going to happen next year or in 10 years. I just know what Jesus has promised us. Those who desire to live godly, will face persecution. So what if we just start expecting pushback from church people? What if we also start praying that God will raise up more true shepherds? 
in his church. You know, a couple generations ago, when you would talk to a parent, you'd ask them, what do you want your kid to become? A common answer, and some of you can affirm this a couple generations ago, was, well, I hope my kid becomes a pastor or missionary or church staff member. What's weird is in 20 years of church ministry, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that as a parent. And you're like, well, obviously, who would want their kid to go into a church leadership role? Church is messed up. And you're right. You're right. But look what Jesus did in the midst of that mess. Look at how Jesus stood up and he, he lovingly corrected. He rebuked those who were frauds. He, he pointed people to scripture. And many believed that the fruit was incredible. I just wonder if maybe we have aspirations for our kids that are different from God's aspirations. What if we started praying that God would raise up more leaders for the church? And I don't even mean it has to be like pastoral ministry or anything like that, but more young people who would become volunteers and small group leaders and servant leaders and teachers. Because our region desperately needs more genuine leaders for the church. Amen? What if we start praying, God, raise those up in my home? And maybe for some of you, it's like, maybe it's me. Like, maybe it's me. Maybe God wants me to do something in a greater way to serve him. Even though I'm going to face friendly fire. Even though I'm going to be sucker punched by people that I think are friends. By people that I think are faith family. Some of you, I know this is confusing because you have this idea of Jesus where Jesus is the Prince of Peace, correct? He's the Prince of Peace. And so we're talking about a lot of tension and difficulty. Let me clarify about Jesus being Prince of Peace from Jesus' own words, Matthew 10. Jesus said, don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. What? I came not to bring peace, but a sword. A sword in that day was the era 15. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are like, well, that already happened. Well, okay. Listen to this, though. Your enemies will be right in your own household. Some of you live this every day, don't you? If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Jesus is looking for more people who will give up their lives for him no matter the cost. Friends, I'm just going to be honest. I think we've gotten way too comfortable. Way too comfortable. I think we expect the Christian life to be easier. And the more I study these passages and the more I look at the opposition Jesus faced, it is just constant sucker punches from people who should know better. And that's what the Christian life is often like. And I don't think we need to play the victim card and I don't think we need to act like martyrs. I think we just need to brace ourselves and say, okay, this is going to be normal. I am surrounded by people. Some have true faith and some don't. And by my fruit, by my love, I will prove that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Some of you are wondering, what's the test to prove true or false faith? 
Let me give you something to write down. You can study it. Galatians 5. It's a passage I try to pray each day. Galatians 5. It talks about the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the flesh is normal and we all have it. The fruit of the spirit is very unnatural. And only those who are in Jesus can display it. Jesus was continually, continually sucker punched. But here's the deal. Jesus did some of his greatest work under withering opposition. And this is why I have hope today, is I think we as a church family, even using these series to prepare us, I think when opposition hits from without and when more opposition comes from within, we'll be ready. And we won't compromise. Because see, you might be shocked when you share your faith story or, 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 or when you do something good and you face criticism and pushback from the very people you thought would support you. Now you can just say, oh, I expected that. I expected that, and I'm going to love them anyway, and I'm going to point them to Jesus because maybe some of my critics hop the fence, and I want them to be part of this sheepfold. I want them to come in and experience the salvation and the forgiveness that Jesus offers that they're trying to earn, and they can't. And my friends, maybe even the people who oppose us will see in us something they don't have, and they'll want it. And that's an awesome thing. Because I'm telling you, some of the greatest opponents of the gospel become some of the greatest proponents of Jesus when God gets a hold of them. You want an example? How about Saul, the terrorist, who became Paul the apostle and was responsible for spreading the Christian faith throughout Asia, Asia Minor, and into Europe, single-handedly. Maybe God is going to raise up more people who were opponents, but they become proponents because they watch you. They see how you handle opposition. They see your love for the church. They see that you're not fearful or anxious or angry. And what if by our love we prove to the world that we are true followers of Jesus Christ? Anyone up for the challenge? Let's give her a whirl. Would you pray with me this morning? Let me just say by way of invitation today, if you are not a follower of Jesus, listen, that, that idea of being a fraud or hopping the gate, if you're here and you're seeking and you're searching, that, that doesn't apply to you, right? You're, you're on a journey and you're hungry and we're so proud of you for being here. Many of us have given a bad name to Jesus, and yet you're still here, and you're still searching. So we invite you. Jesus came to this world. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died for our sin that we couldn't pay for. And he rose from the dead three days later, and he offers to anyone willing to turn from their sin and to turn to him to forgive them and give them eternal life. And if that's you, I want to invite you to believe there is a gate and his name is Jesus. He is the way of salvation, the only way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. My friend, you're probably a good person. But your goodness can't get you to heaven. Only Jesus can. 
So I invite you, as that pastor 50-some years ago invited the people in green to come study the Bible and see that Jesus needed to be accepted personally. If you've never received Jesus as your personal Savior, I invite you today to tell him you believe. May today be your turning point. If that's you today, welcome to the family of God. We're so excited to help you grow in your new faith. Listen, if you're here and you're questioning your own salvation, that's actually not a bad thing. Scripture says, better to question your salvation now than on the day of judgment. Maybe there's an 18-inch gap that you need to deal with. Your, your knowledge is strong, but your heart is lacking. Let the gospel drop your heart. Man, when that happened for me, it was so life-changing. It's one thing to know all the right answers. It's another thing to be broken. And I'm telling you, my friend, if you're here and maybe you're facing opposition and maybe it's from your spouse or your family or friends or your connect group or people within your faith family, I just want to tell you, please don't give up. Look at the example of Jesus. He, he was persistent and he, and he showed us a map for how to handle constant opposition from those in our faith. God, teach us, show us how to be Jesus followers in the midst of opposition. Thank you for the privilege you've given us to serve you, to show those far from you that there is a better way. There is a God who loves them, who made them on purpose. And God, I just can't wait to see as our church family gets stronger and deeper in our faith what you will do as other people see and hear the good news repeatedly. Sometimes just from the power of our example. Show us, teach us how to do this, we pray. In the awesome name of Jesus Christ, amen.